0: Flushcare.com slash weight loss. Sadiq Khan demands action on £1 billion of oligarch property in the capital. London architects ditch Russia projects in protest over Ukraine invasion. Could a larger low-emission zone transform air quality and congestion across the city? And yet another cyclist is killed at one of London's deadliest junctions. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week is Oliver Lord. Ollie is head of Clean Cities Campaign UK. Welcome to the show. Hi, Marilyn. Thanks for having me. This week, Sadiq Khan announced plans to expand the city's ultra low emission zone. That's the ULES. It was introduced last year. Um, the expanded zone will encompass the whole of the greater London area. Um, this was widely reported uh, in the Independent, City AM, and The Guardian. Um, the ULES currently covers the area between the north and south circular roads. and I mean, drivers of polluting cars, um, these are typically older cars without a modern Euro 4 rated or newer engine, have to pay a £12.50 daily charge for using their vehicles in this area under the new expansion which will come into place next year all cars within the m25 orbital motorway area will need to meet these emission standards or face the daily charge Um, this means outer london places like croydon orpington watford enfield and twickenham will all now be within the ulez In his speech last Friday, Khan said, quote, bold measures were required to tackle the issues of toxic air pollution, congestion and the climate crisis in the city. He went on to say that, quote, in weighing up the different options, the rising cost of living was a key consideration for me, because at a time when people's budgets are under pressure, I'm not willing to ask people to pay more unless I'm absolutely convinced it's justified to save lives and protect the health of Londoners. Khan continued, "I believe the proposal to extend the ULEZ London-wide will have the biggest effect on emissions and congestion relative to the potential financial impact on Londoners as a whole." The move will take an estimated 20 to 40,000 of the most polluting vehicles off the road, City Hall says, as well as delivering a 10% reduction in nitrogen oxide gases. Um, Significantly, that is less than the 30% cut in Nox and the 47 fewer cars brought about by the October 2021 ULES expansion that brought it up to the South and North Circular. Um, Khan also ruled out a proposed £3.50 boundary charge for motorists to enter Greater London, as well as a daily clean air charge. Um, Those were the two other alternatives under consideration to raise revenue for TfL ahead of its bid for a latest round of emergency government funding. Um, So Oli, you work for Clean Cities Campaign. Uh, Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about London in terms of its air quality. Um, How does it compare to other European cities?
1: Air pollution across Europe is uh, estimated to contribute to about 300,000 deaths a year. And, you know, London it compares quite poorly um, to other cities around the world. In fact, we we put out um, a ranking system quite recently of thirty six different cities, and we were actually looking at how well cities are doing with their um, approach to zero emission mobility. So that's cleaner air, but also you know cleaner public transport and things like that. And London came about twelfth in that ranking. But London suffers from roughly three times the World Health Organization guidelines as London's air quality at the moment. And it really suffers from the issue of diesel, which a lot of European cities do. I mean, you could take other examples such as uh, Paris. And Milan, which is in this terrible um, canyon, in a way that kind of just kind of pollution just kind of sits on top of the city. Um, so London isn't alone, but because of its scale, it is you know really significant. And you know we we're seeing children like leaving primary school uh, last year that have spent ten years you know their whole lives pretty much living with illegal air pollution. So we're not just talking about breaching World Health Organization guidelines, which are in effect you know a more of a gold standard, but even like legal limits that were meant to be met back in 2010 so it's it's a real mess you know and I I kind of attended the the vigil of uh, Ella uh, Kissy Deborah the young girl who died from you know who air pollution was a contributory factor to her death and and that was um, agreed quite recently by a coroner and I went to a vigil that on what would have been her 18th birthday and so many people were there just kind of you know exuberant at the thought of like are we actually going to address this issue um so i think what sadique has put forward is pretty bold you know um um, but there's lots more to do i could go on i could talk about the cost of air pollution to the economy as well and, and the carbon challenge you know
0: I'd be quite interested to know a breakdown of what is causing this pollution in London because I I was recently in Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria. The air was awful, and it was kind of I mean there you could you could really smell people were burning coal, people were burning wood, and also there were just really really old cars on the road, and it was kind of immediately apparent. But when I'm thinking of London, is it mostly cars that are causing this? Um, is it something else, industrial? Is it other? Yeah, and also. I mean, also London like has quite a lot of new cars on the road already compared to other cities around the world and certainly around Britain. So yeah, what is the actual breakdown of what what's driving this?
1: Roughly half of it comes from uh, road transport. And then you've got other major sources uh, such as buildings uh, and domestic uh, heating. It also depends on the pollutant you're talking about as well. So I think London suffers from... It has a big issue with two major pollutants. So there's um, nitrogen dioxide, which is a transparent gas, uh, and that is predominantly caused by uh, diesel, really, and burning things. And then you've got particulate matter, which is like the really small bits uh, in the air that you can't see, smaller than a a human hair, and kind of really gets into your bloodstream. And that can that transports quite a lot as well so you know we'll have pollution episodes around particulate matter that actually is contributed to by uh, industrial uh, emissions in France and Germany as well because it kind of blows over into the city when we get those pollution episodes so it's a real mix but you know like if you're walking alongside the road where because we've got to look at this from the exposure perspective rather than just all the pollution in the city and if you are walking alongside the road then you know you can start to Realize it's the vehicles right next to you that are kind of contributing the most of the pollution in that very that very area, but you know you you mentioned other sources and, and buildings of course also have a big impact and there was a big issue with uh, combined heat and power plants as well and the policy that was put forward in the London plan, and that was a real interesting example of how climate policy and air pollution policy or air quality policy wasn't talking to each other in the same way that diesel cars were promoted for climate reasons and then the air quality component wasn't quite considered and they weren't talking to each other. So I'm really hoping... We're, to, we're not going to be making those mistakes again.
0: Last October, when that ULES was first introduced, um, Khan was hailed for the kind of scope and boldness of this this piece of legislation. Um, however, in the end, though, it did actually turn out that um, the vast majority of cars, about 92% of them, already complied uh, with those ULES guidelines. Um, so what has actually been the impact of the current ULES um, as it currently stands? Um, and do you think this move to expand it across the whole of London Will change much i mean i've certainly cycled behind awfully polluting cars in outer london but yeah is, is, is it just going to be a similar thing as, as the first one is it actually going to be radical
1: i mean it would definitely be radical taking into account another sort of um millions more households um you know and and half of all car journeys i think are, are made in in outer london so you know we're definitely gonna be capturing um, far more harmful emissions in, as part of this scheme the The interesting thing with the compliance of the low emission zone, you know, having worked, I did used to work in the public sector and I actually helped to develop this policy under the previous mayor, actually, uh, and subsequently this mayor, is the interesting thing about compliance is like the whole, the impact that this sort of scheme has is the build up to the introduction of it. So the compliance level, uh, therefore people changing their cars and actually having cars that meet the standards happens over a quite a sustained period of time so the the, the best thing that it can do is be uh, you can explain to people this is a policy and it's going to come in in this in this certain time period and it gives them time to change so on the day that the scheme comes in yeah you've got 92 percent compliance but actually you're better looking at the years preceding that when it was announced and actually seeing the impact that's had Against to maybe what the natural churn of the vehicle fleet would have been otherwise. So it's people looking forward and kind of going, actually, it's going to cost me this amount of money in the future. I'm going to change my car as a result of it. And that's interesting
0: because I think the original ULEZ zone. I, I'm pretty sure I've been aware of that since at least 2016 or 2017. So obviously, people did have a lot of time um who were going in and out of the South Circular had time to to make those kind of decisions about their new car, whatever. But this latest one 's coming in with a year 's notice I mean uh, is the assumption that all the people in outer London suburbs Greenbelt have already upgraded so they can nip in through into the south circular north circular zone or i mean or, or do we actually miss out on that compliance fade in as you just described it
1: it 's a really good point um, so we did some analysis um last uh, autumn and we did see that actually across London diesel cars for example like um, people are getting rid of their diesel cars six times faster than like the rest of the UK so there's definitely it's definitely sort of bled into like out of London as a policy it will present some challenges though I think you know like the mayor only yeah consulted a couple of years ago on this plan that it will stop at the north south circular so I think it there's going to be a lesson learned from this that the missed opportunity now with this announcement is like okay but what next after this it feels a little reactionary it's absolutely the right thing to be doing but what the mayor should be doing at this time is saying okay by the end of 2023 this is what i want to happen but in 2025 this is what i want to happen in 2028 this is what i want to happen in 2030 this is what i want to happen and really bring people with them because i i think at this stage this time scale that has been proposed as well, the cynic in me would also think maybe it's related to funding agreements and, and settlements with with the DFT because it's April 2023. I think when that is meant to end and, and TfL is meant to be bringing in more revenue. So, you know, like the timings, his announcement now, just in the run-up to local elections, you know, whether they, whether you would do that normally, I don't know. But, you know, it, it makes me wonder what the primary purpose is. Obviously, the mayor's adamant about uh improving air quality in the city but if this is also a revenue generator then the scheme's not meant to make money because if it's making money it's not working interesting and just
0: thinking about those additional measures, which you argue should be flagged for like future phasing in. Um, in his speech, Sadiq Khan spoke about the three main challenges facing the city, air pollution, congestion and the climate crisis. Um, will this expansion of the ULEs effectively tackle all of these? Um, and also, are there are there any other additional methods, perhaps other things that should be brought in in the future, phased in, um, that could be used to, to slash those emissions, fight congestion, and tackle climate change across the city?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really good question to ask because, like, I think obviously the mayor's right in talking about these sort of triple threats as he as he puts it, congestion, air pollution, and 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 carbon. I mean, carbon emissions from transport have, have flatlined in the past uh, thirty years. Road traffic's increasing. Would will the ULES sort of uh, resolve all this? Um, no, in all honesty, no. I don't think it will. You know, the the current scheme even offers a free invitation to people to to go buy a new diesel car. You know, firstly, we should be seeing uh, a signal to Londoners don't buy another diesel car. You know, they're really contributing to the problem, and and on the carbon side, there have been some reduction in carbon emissions. As a result of the ULEZ, there's been some reduction in, in car use, but really not at the scale that we need. That the mayor has spelt out. I mean, he's talked about a 27 percent reduction in car kilometres needed for to to meet uh, London's carbon goals. You won't get that from the ULEZ. So, what else is needed? Well, uh, I think as you as you know, as you implying, much more is needed, and I think one of those is uh, speeding up the electri- electrification of the bus fleet which is going to cost quite a bit, bit of money, but it could be a great UK industry uh, um, success. And I think, you know, even the basic stuff like the mayor, he had uh, introduced a congestion charge at weeknights uh, into the evenings, you know, over the COVID period and then said, oh, no, we're going to we're going to take it back again because it needs to support business. I think those sort of gestures are kind of like contradicting with the approach that he's setting out Um I don't think that, that sort of uh, decision is, is kind of very helpful in this situation.
0: And just thinking just while we we're on that topic of electrification, um, I mean, you see it, you see people just buying just buying an electric car. That's their kind of solution to this. Um, could that work? Would that, would that actually tackle those triple issues of air quality, congestion and climate change? Or is that actually just another one of these weird incentives that's come up along the way because of a, a lack of a holistic enough policy?
1: Definitely, electric cars have a big role to play because, like you know, let's be frank. You know, if you stood next to an, a, an electric car on the road, or you stood next to a diesel one, the health impacts of standing next to an electric one are going to be far, you know, better. I think what frustrates me on the electric car debate is that, firstly, the government strategy to um, decarbonisation and, and cleaner air seems to revolve mostly around the technological you know uh, a solution of, of electrification and and with like the number of cars in the city like london or elsewhere and road chuffing increasing that cannot be the answer right because our roads are not getting bigger unless you did want to talk about Silvertown tunnel um the other side of it that frustrates me as well though is a lot of the green groups i work with will occasionally kind of really plow on that electric cars produce pollution because they do because you know when we go back to the sources we talked about tyre and brake wear from vehicles is actually, a you know, a big con- contributor to particulates. But when we look at the numbers, we've got like forty, fifty thousand electric cars in London. There's 2.6 million cars. So right now I kind of don't really see electric cars as a threat. I'm, you know, happy to kind of promote them and stuff. But I think it's, it's, it's more about how do we incentivize and enable people to get out of the cars full stop. That's what we need to be working on. And, and just a final thing. I mean, that, coming back to that tube strike
0: you mentioned, I mean... Uh, there was a great contrast between uh, on the embankment, the cycle lane, which was flowing, and then the sort of gridlocked street, which someone tweeted uh, and got a lot of response online. Um, but at the same time, if you were a bus user, I mean, I saw queues of like hundreds of people at bus stops. I tried waiting for a bus for about 10 minutes. It definitely wasn't coming. And it was pretty uh, tragic. Um and um, it seems like uh, despite the pandemic, despite the cost of living crisis, despite petrol you know could even reach two pounds a litre or something this year, people are still driving. Is it just about you know, if it, you make it expensive, will people just keep on doing it um, or um, is there something else? Is there some kind of cultural shift that needs to happen or um, you know, what, what could actually achieve it? Because sometimes
1: it just doesn't seem like people will change. There's so much to undo and unpick when it comes to people's um, love of using cars and their attachment to them. So it is going to take some time. And Yeah, I think people will soak up the cost to some extent. That said, like... Um, we've talked, you know, a fair amount about cars, but like one of the, the biggest issues I think facing the city at the minute from a clean air and climate perspective in relation to ULEDS is also uh, diesel vans as well. Like, you know, I think over the past like 20 years, you know, there was, there was about 2 million vans in the UK. Now there's about 4 million. The roads aren't getting bigger, but more and more deliveries and, and things like that. So I do wonder if, you know, Previously, we, you know, we had that plastic bag tax that came, kind of came in and God, I wish we kind of did that 15 years ago, because what an impact it's had just putting 10p in a plastic bag, right? And I I, I kind of think, could we do the same with uh, next day deliveries? That's, that is definitely a, an issue that I don't think we're addressing sufficiently from a transport planning climate and clean air perspective. Um, it's It's mostly been revolved around cars, but the vans issue that's kind of what's starting to unpick the Greater Manchester clean air zone and other clean air zones as well, because of the supply of the uh, cleaner vans. Images
0: of the devastation unfurling across Ukraine's towns, ports and cities have dominated television news and social media for the past two weeks. And with many feeling powerless in the face of the Russian invasion, pressure is ratcheting up on governments and companies around the world to retaliate economically in the hope it could halt Vladimir Putin's aggression and cripple his regime. In the UK, Russian oligarchs, these are extremely wealthy individuals widely thought to have strong financial links to Putin, are facing new sanctions, including an asset freeze which could make it impossible for them to use their money, and a travel ban. Russian banks and businesses have also been targeted by the sanctions, which aim to avoid a direct conflict with Russia, but have been slammed by many for not doing enough to halt Putin's onslaught against Ukraine's civilian population. In the US and in Europe, sanctions are already in place, and in France, for example, super yachts linked to some of these billionaires have already been confiscated. Meanwhile, a series of formal and ad hoc embargoes on trading Russia oil and gas have also been announced in recent days. Russian oligarchs can be directly tied to more than 200 million pounds of UK property, the majority of which is in the capital. This is something that has been reported in The Guardian, Bloomberg and on London. So far, 11 Kremlin-linked oligarchs have been targeted by UK sanctions. Among them is Mikhail Friedman, who owns several multi-million pound mansions in and around London, including Athlone House, a mansion in Highgate that Friedman bought back in 2016 for a staggering £65 million. The former Russian Deputy Prime Minister... Igor Shuvalov, was named by Keir Starmer in Parliament last week as owning two Westminster flats bought for an estimated £11 million. Starmer said, quote, Transparency is essential to rooting out corruption. He continued, It should be built into our law, but it's not, and I'm ashamed that we only know about Shuvalov's Westminster flats because a dissident risked his life. Echoing the Labour leader's sentiment, London Mayor Sadi Khan this week has called for greater transparency around tax and overseas homeowners in the capital. In a statement released last week, Khan demanded that all assets linked to pro-Putin allies be seized by UK authorities, uh, citing an estimate by Transparency International, that's an anti-corruption NGO, of 100 London properties cumulatively worth £1.1 billion owned by Russians accused of corruption or links to the Kremlin. The mayor said government ministers have, quote, turned a blind eye to the use of our capital's home as a safe harbour for oligarchs to park their cash uh, and claim this is having a negative impact on both our international reputation and our local housing market. Uh, Sadiq Khan is also calling for an increase in the number of taxes affecting overseas buyers and investors in the capital. In his statement, he proposes raising capital gains tax from 28 to 40%, as well as higher rates in yearly tax paid by overseas investors in UK property and a hike in council tax to be levied on homes left unoccupied by international owners. So Oli, what's this all about? More than a billion pounds of property in the capital alone is linked to the Kremlin and pro-Putin oligarchs. Uh, While Russia is now at the centre of this story, huge swathes of London property are also owned by the Saudi royal family and individuals strongly tied to the Chinese Communist Party, for example, uh, both of which have been linked to human rights abuses. Why is the London property market so attractive to such plutocrats and what sort of impact does this have on London, both as a place to live, but also in terms of how it's seen by people around the world, You know, including many people who are victims of such abusive regimes?
1: You know, my immediate thoughts on this issue are around how it's wrapped up in the long term lack of supply of housing, full stop, and that's something we've created for a long time. And also like the long term fiscal policies that have been placed in place around capital gains tax, inheritance tax, have really exacerbated wealth inequality in the city for a significant period of time. I mean, I've been in London now for like 15 years and year after year, we've seen how uh, the lack of housing supply and 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 the cost of housing has, has led to people either leave the city or, or a big squeeze on people's incomes. And that you know th- those long term policies in place have have led to this sort of playground that we're now talking about right in westminster and k and c um so i I kind of think sadly you know this has all come to light because of the situation in in ukraine and it's but it is also something people have been talking about for a considerable period of time, and how we address it, you know how you start to undo those long term policies well, maybe you can do it quickly, but I'm a bit uncertain. I and mean, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on you know, the immediate action that should be taken, but I think what Sadiq has proposed is, is actually... Pretty sensible as a starting
0: point. As a result of these proposed new sanctions and taxes, City Hall is saying that up to three hundred and seventy million a year could be raised for investment in council housing and also other affordable homes uh, in London. I mean, potentially that's a truly transformative sum of money, uh, especially in a time when, as we've covered previously on London, we're seeing children in London submitted to hospital because their families cannot afford the heating bills or the homes are just substandard; they're not insulated, uh, and people are getting ill. um But anyway, why are we in a situation where it's taken an appalling war which has completely shocked the world to to prompt these kind of redist- redistributive sanctions and ta- taxes like this um but previously like nothing was being done considered um, being considered like this of you know, this level to help those millions of people facing the housing and the cost of living crises um often people who themselves are just living not very far
1: from these billionaire mansions which are just protected with impunity you know it does take such a significant event like this to be a wake-up call I suppose and like reset people's thinking there's been a lot of institutional thinking for years around oh this is just how you know things the lay of the land is in London's property market but I think it's also relates to some extent to the national agenda of the discussions around levelling up and, and 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 how also the government you start to think the government doesn't care as much about investment in London anymore so that actually they can start to kind of have this discussion in an open arena and have this battle I'm I'm hoping this just leads to long-term change though and it's not all reactionary and the one thing that I think I'm really hoping it might help to shake up as well is how the London property market as well even in the UK in general has quite as has led the landlord to be king a lot and I think that's kind of how a lot of this um, foreign investment has been a lot of foreign investors will will buy and also rent out properties right but like they'll do that because landlords are so well protected I think um, in in the housing market in, in the UK compared to maybe other countries where there's rent control and things like that so it's seen as a really lucrative investment you know.
0: Thank you for supporting The Lundown by listening, subscribing and sharing the show. The Lundown is produced by Open City and the London Society. Open City is a charity best known for Open House Festival but also for our tours, educational programmes and events. Uh, the show along with the festival and schools programme are free because we believe everyone should have access to the tools and resources to learn about and experience our built environment to keep this show free for everyone we rely on those who can afford it to donate the equivalent of one coffee per month so if this is you uh please please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white to donate and keep these conversations accessible inclusive and honest thank you Several prominent UK architecture practices have responded to the war in Ukraine by stepping back from projects based in Russia. This has been reported in a series of AJ articles. Uh, prestigious, world-famous London firms like Zaha Hadid Architects and David Chipperfield Architects have both stopped working on projects in Russia. And LDA Design and the uh, designer of the Westminster Mound, MVRDV, have also pledged to halt work in the country. Meanwhile, John McAslan and Partners said it would, quote, step back from any further work in Russia and JTP said it does not have any plans to focus on winning new work in Russia for the foreseeable future. Their statements follow almost two weeks of conflict that have seen thousands of military and civilian deaths and more than two million Ukrainians forced to flee the country as refugees. They also come after Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng took to Twitter to argue, quote, there is now a strong moral imperative on British companies to isolate Russia and that Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine must be a wake up call for British businesses with commercial interests in Russia. Zaha Hadid Architects, um, who designed the London Aquatic Centre, the Evelyn Grace Academy and other famous buildings in the capital, uh, has worked in Russia for four decades and has won several high-profile design projects in Moscow in recent years, including re-cladding on housing blocks, a 460-hectare master plan, a new metro station and even a techno park. A spokesperson for ZHA said, quote, We are deeply shocked and saddened by the conflict in Ukraine and have placed our two ongoing projects in Russia on hold, we've completed our contracted works on all other projects in the country and continue to monitor guidance from the UK government. Meanwhile, Scottish architect Tony Kettle, uh, the architect behind the Greenwich Peninsula Gulf Range, which you can actually see from Open City's office in Design District, um, will hand back a medal which he received from Russia's President Vladimir Putin. Uh, The founder of Edinburgh-based Kettle Collective was awarded the Order of Friendship of the Russian Federation at the Russian Embassy in London in July last year, and previously worked on plans for a new Gazprom skyscraper in St. Petersburg. Um, A spokesperson for the firm said, quote, we work across many countries at Kettle Collective, and we've made up of an international team, including both Russians and Ukrainians, who are directly affected by this dreadful war. And our thoughts remain firmly with them, their families, and the many thousands of Ukrainians affected by this senseless invasion. Um, Oli, uh, arguably there's sort of two ways to read this story. Some may say that it's it's a bold move by these practices, um, some of whom have turned down or halted huge, prestigious, money-making projects uh, to show their support for the Ukrainian people. Um, perhaps they should be congratulated. Um, or... Is this perhaps a bit more pragmatic or even cynical, um, perhaps linked to economics, uh, bearing in mind the value of the ruble has fallen 20 percent against the pound uh, due to these strict sanctions recently, um, which surely means any work done for Russian clients will now be worth a lot less in billing terms.
1: Yeah, I, the way I kind of see it is that, you know, it's it's part of like huge gestures being put forward by you know other industries as well. I think, you know, it's it's not just architectural firms that are kind of making these decisions. But I think you know. In answer to your question, I kind of think uh, I'll be that annoying commentator to kind of say, like, I think it's it's a bit of both, really, right? It's definitely a, an economic decision, but you know, it's also reading the room a little bit with the with the public outcry and and uh, you know, would you expect them not to be doing this this sort of thing? You know, um, but I mean, I felt like ultimately the the question to be asked here is, you know, like yeah, individual practices making these decisions, but what about the, uh, you know, Reba and people like that and whether they should be actually having a much stronger position on this?
0: Last week, yet another cyclist was sadly killed on a lethal junction, which has so far claimed the lives of eight cyclists since 2008. It was reported by The Guardian. Um, Sather Ali, a 39-year-old lawyer, was cycling near Hoban Station during the tube strikes last Tuesday uh, when she was involved in a fatal incident with a lorry. In response, hundreds of cyclists swarmed the deadly junction on Friday evening to protest the lack of action to improve safety for cyclists and to mourn the death of Ali. There have also been renewed calls to Sadiq Khan to improve road safety for cyclists, uh, not just at this junction but across the whole of London, uh, which has seen a surge in the number of cyclists over the past few years. Just last August, Dr Marta Kravitz was killed one junction along from last week's tragic incident. Um, and while a change was made to the road, campaigners said calls for more improvements had not yet been met. Um, so, Ollie, you're a cyclist. What's your experience of cycling around London? Um, why do certain junctions, uh, and especially this one in Hoban, um prove to be so dangerous to people on bikes?
1: it's It's very easy when you kind of see what what's happened to also kind of forget like the improvements we've seen in the city right you know there have been like significant changes in certain roads segregation um but I really still think we're going too slowly on this i i I remember working back um on in doing transport planning and the bow roundabout deaths happened and that really sort of spurred on changes in that area, but it's really sad that it has to take you know fatalities like this to to actually spur on change we kind of know what the approach should be right the first one you know look at an area like Hoban it's symptomatic of other places that it's just a, a big one-way system that encourages people to, to to drive at certain speeds um and um and doesn't give sufficient space for for, for cyclists
0: yeah I think I've, I've cycled through this junction in Hoban and it's very confusing and quite scary to approach as a cyclist and um it's really not clear what's going on and it seems like when the lights change, everybody's. Racing forward, and there's quite a sort of complicated mix of trucks and cabs, and not that many cyclists. Um, it seems like a lot of these problems are very specific, you know. So it's like we've got big ideas about improving areas uh, the whole of London's transport, but they were just like particular places like this. But we, that can be solved, surely. It can be solved, like,
1: yeah. That's, I mean, that's the frustration. I think you know. Th- People know what needs to be done. We need like more protected bike lanes. You know, the the transport planners really know what the solutions are. You know, I there's a couple of things to consider here. One is um I think, you know, a, a quick solution would be about making the road uh, the speed limits, reducing it to twenty miles an hour, right? It's an affordable and effective solution, especially if it's enforced. Um, and you know speed is actually a factor of one in three collisions, so like people when people are killed killed or seriously injured, and speed is a is a factor so that that 'd be the first thing i 'd say and I know there 's been some movement recently around that, but the other is um i've i 've kind of explained a lot when you look at an area like Hoban, i know it 's in Camden, but you know if you look at central London as a whole it 's all kind of symptomatic of like the issue that london has with having so many different highway authorities having to agree with each other on what improvements should be taken you look at you know like the west end and 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 an area that sort of westminster council controls compared to the city of london who have invested a lot in public realm and I think there's also you know there's a political element to this that like you know in 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 the city of London they're investing in their streets in a certain way because the businesses also agree that that's the approach to be taking, and they have a vote for who is in control of the streets whereas in 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 the west End and with in in Westminster. It's actually sadly like a minority number of residents and the v- businesses don't really get the vote and and the sway they would like and, and transforming the West End and and influencing who actually takes those decisions. So it's quite an interesting case study. But you know, uh, I know it's a bit radical, but I think if I was Coming forward to try and resolve this, I'd just have a central London highway authority and actually make sure that, you know, uh, all the, all the roads were getting the same treatment of, of safety for cyclists and vulnerable road users. Um, you know, Londoners are increasingly
0: taking to two wheels. Um, and The message from the mayor is, is to opt for active travel wherever it's possible. Um, I mean, is, is, is this a sort of prudent move? I mean, is the current cycling interventions good enough to keep an increasing volume of cyclists safe? Um uh and you know and then also how can these these roads be made even safer for cyclists and also for cyclists of all abilities um you know if we're going to have this transformation everybody needs to feel you know totally uh in, in enjoying the
1: experience i do feel like we're we're stepping out from the years of the mammal right the middle-aged man in lycra and, and we are starting to thankfully diversify who feels comfortable cycling yes we have to make things safer obviously on the roads but we also have to make it just as easy and convenient for people as well and and something I've kick-started this week with our, with our campaign is around the issue of bike storage as well on-street bike storage for people that live in flats and if you're a family and you want to get your kids using bikes like where do you keep all these bikes right it starts to get pretty awkward and the cost as well even, of, even if you can find a space you're one of the lucky Londoners to get a space in one of those bike sheds on, on the street the cost of that can be quite pro- prohibitive as well. So that's something we're looking to um, London boroughs to start to uh, roll out much more.
0: Ollie, many thanks for featuring on the show. Um, it's been a great pleasure to discuss these issues with you. Um, where can our listeners uh, keep up to speed on your projects, your writing, new reports, things you're doing?
1: Uh, we're on Twitter. So it's uh, at uh, cities underscore clean and clean uh, i'd love for people to get involved and, and find out more so um merlin question for you though like is there anything at open city coming up that you'd like to share
0: ollie thanks for asking so um Regular listeners of the show will be aware that uh, we have upcoming, a very exciting Baylight Fellowship uh, residential masterclass uh, in Cambridge. Uh, This is happening on the 1st and 2nd uh, of April. Um, Come and join me and the Open City team. Uh, We're going uh, to visit some really, really fascinating uh, examples of um, residential architectural excellence. That's uh, Accordia, Marmalade Lane, um, some span housing at Highset. And then also on the way back... um, we're going to uh, visit the Ride in Hatfield, which is like a 1963 co-housing, amazing uh, project. Um, At these locations, we're going to talk to the developers, architects, people are going to give us tours, we're going to meet residents, Um, there's going to be representation from the Cambridge Housing uh, Delivery Agency there. Um, So yeah, it's going to be a really great time. Uh, And also, we're going to stay overnight in the 6A designed Cowan Court at Churchill uh, College in Cambridge. So um, if you're interested if you're tempted uh don't miss this opportunity go to the website and look for it um, and then also the other thing to mention uh you've probably heard me say this before Kate McIntosh is giving a lecture okay this is open city's mega lecture it's happening uh at earth in dawson a really really cool um venue uh it's on the uh Thursday the seventh of April uh, tickets are available on our website and um, Kate McIntosh is going to talk about um, both the the amazing uh, 1960s social housing projects she did across South London, but also her tireless work as a housing campaigner. Um, This is a 700 capacity venue. If you're not in there, uh, you're not one of the cool people. You've got to be there. So get a ticket and come along and um, come along for a great evening uh, with your peers and also uh, Kate McIntosh and the Open City team. That's all from me. (laughs) Uh, Thanks again, Ollie. It's It's been really good. You've been listening to The London, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at @opencitylondon. Or by using the hashtag Lundown, L N D D W N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible, and equitable city.